pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Welcome to Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I am David Clink. And I am Troy Harkin. And this is our Top 10 Sci-Fi Films episode. We're recording it on Saturday, March 12th, 2022, and is scheduled for broadcast on Saturday, March 19th. We do not have a special guest for this episode. Maybe we should just get that spoiler alert out of the way, Troy. Okay, let's push the button. Spoiler Spoiler alert! You know, because today we may have multiple spoilers considering we will be touching on at least 20 films. Yes, or potentially. Maybe fewer, maybe fewer, because there may be some yeah, overlap. That's right. And um, Troy, you wanted to mention maybe to the audience that this is a very, like everyone has their own list. And you can also go on the internet. You can find all sorts of different sites that list and certain ones keep appearing on everyone's top five or 10, like 2001 as an example. But just let let the audience know, this is a very subjective list, isn't it? Well, for sure. And I guess the impetus for it was I was going through a book that I bought recently called 1001 Movies, You Must See Before You Die. And it actually broke down uh, all of the films in in the back into uh, genre. So I went through the sci-fi section. It's like, oh, this is interesting. Um, And then I thought it would be a cool thing for us to do. Also, because we're sort of, we're in awards season at the time of recording right now. Um, But um, I always like approaching it from the subjective uh, point of view of your favorite films, because there are certain films that, yes, granted, like I will put out there, 2001 is pretty much acknowledged as the greatest science fiction film of all all time from many angles, uh, mostly uh, technical, but subjectively... Uh, it's a film that kind of leaves me cold. Uh, I, I quite like it and I appreciate it, but it's not something I want to return to like the film version of comfort food. It is in no way sort of like the science fiction version of the wizard of Oz for me. Um, but I do have other films that, that do fit that mold. And that's sort of what we're here to talk about and to compare, uh, because we're all different and we would love to hear from our fans and listeners uh, afterwards, what some of theirs are Um, because of course there are no wrong answers when we're talking subjectively about our favorites, but uh, yeah, that's sort of the idea. Yeah. And, and, and we certainly don't want any hate mail or people (laughs) going in and saying, Hey, these guys are complete idiots because these are sort of our own things. And there's certain reasons why certain films speak to one person versus another person so someone may have groundhog day as one of their favorite films there's nothing wrong with that but someone else might uh, have something else entirely and uh, within this we certainly are aware that if someone were and and i'll get into this later because i uh, my wife alexa mentioned uh, her own top 10 just alphabetically because it takes a bit of time to actually order it and try to figure out what is 
your favorite overall versus others. And she had mentioned, and I, I will mention this a bit later in the show, how Mad Max Fury Road, she really appreciated that. It was such a good film. And Charlize Theron and so on. And my one of my favorite actors of all time, Tom Hardy, is in it. And they did such a good version, but don't you know start sending haters saying, hey, well, what about Mad Max or the Road Warrior and so right. on? So right. we certainly aren't trying to take away from, or if I mention the thing from another world from, 19, from the 1950s, I don't want people to say, well, the thing from John Carpenter back in 82 was a darn good film, and it was. So anyway, so just to let people know that these are very subjective. Um, just a quick note that we are recording the session via Zoom. In the interest of transparency, which is a note that we have in every episode, especially when it comes to our guests, because we do know our guests, um, that we have known each other for many years, and we're not going to introduce a special guest. There is no special guest. Um, Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with this speculative genre to recall these times with fondness and affection. I always like to start uh, our episodes with a quote. So I will say that I think Ben Travis and James White from EmpireOnline.com in a review titled The Best Sci-Fi Movies of All Time, published on January 31st, 2022, may have said it best when they said, the best science fiction movies take us to places beyond our own imagination, dreaming up impossible futures that inevitably go on to shape our own technological advances. Great sci-fi delivers mind-bending visuals packed with mind-blowing ideas, probing everything from the human experience to the future of humanity. It's a genre that contains multitudes, from fast, funny, colorful space adventures to dark dystopian tragedies set in the present, far future, or even a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Now, Troy and I are going to be looking at our own personal top 10 science fiction films and why they are our best 10. We're going to start with number 10 and eventually finish at number one. If Troy picks his number 10, he will go into why. And if that film is in my top 10 list, I will mention where I have it and the reason why it is in my top 10 list. And then we'll go to um, my top 10 and then so on. We'll just keep repeating the process till we eventually get to number one. So something that I noticed going through my top 10, and I won't give anything away yet. I won't do any, we won't do any spoilers for our list, but uh, here are a couple of commonalities that I noticed after I compiled my list. Six films were set on earth and three were set in space. Three scores were by John Williams and two were by Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, Jeff Goldblum uh, is featured in two of them. Leonard Nimoy is in two of them. Harrison Ford is in two of the films. And Veronica Cartwright is in two. And that's all I will say for now. For my own spoiling myself, um, I, do, I did list all of the uh, directors for my top ten and Ridley Scott is a director of two of the ones that appear in my top four. Yeah. Now, uh, do you want to start with your 10 or do you want me to start with my my 10th or do you want me to start with my 10th? Well, we could flip four or 
you are we we have David's uh, list up, so we could start with you, David, and then you can fill in if you want for me. Yeah. But so, yeah, what what do you have for number ten, Dave? What what okay. kicks it all off? And you may you? hear you may hear some ruffling of paper because oh. what I did was on a sheet. I just noted in some highlights, even though I should probably just do this off the top of my head. The reasons. And this, this, and I, I was just going to say before we do this, this might be redundant. I don't think I've said it already. And, and I will let listeners know I may have more Mia culpas uh, to come after this episode. I'm on, uh, I'm, I'm just doing my, uh, my booster did it yesterday for COVID. So I'm a little bit dopey feeling, but otherwise, okay. Uh, anyway, what I wanted to say was at the end, after we reach our number ones, we will give you a brief breakdown of our honorable mentions that, that ended up, you know, that we considered for our top 10, but just didn't make it. Um, they might be like 10 B, C, D, et cetera. Some of them are, were very tough to eliminate, but we'll get to that later on. Anyway, David, what is number 10 for you? Okay. The number 10 on my list, and it might sound a bit odd having this in anyone's top 10, um, but I was very much taken from a movie that, that came out, I think, in 2016 uh, by Denis uh, Villeneuve, um, or he directed it, certainly. But anyways, Arrival is a first contact um, story that, without ho- hopefully trying to spoil it, it does work out better than the movie Alien, which was also, I guess, a kind of a, first contact film um amy adams jeremy renner forrest whitaker um who was also in another science fiction film i think he played i'm trying to remember if he played a psychic in the movie species but there's an emotional wallop in it there's a time element there's a wonderful relationship the world is on the brink of war and arrival is just almost a perfect wonderful uh film and and for me i i prefer films that do capture a moment and also have that emotional content, that EQ in it. This is the day they arrived. The object touched down 40 minutes ago. Mama, what's going to happen? I don't know. Dr. Banks, you're at the top of everyone's list when it comes to translations. You hear any words? Is that? Yes. Am I the only one having trouble saying aliens? What do they look like? You'll see soon enough. They need to see me. Dr. Banks? Now that's a proper introduction. More objects have landed around the world. It's their language. Got 21 hours before they start global war. They're not our enemy. We need to talk to them. It's more complicated than that. How is it more complicated? Are you dreaming in their language? What does it say? Weapon. So how do we clarify their intentions? I go back in. What is she doing? You are committing an act of treason. So you trust me? So that's my number 10 is Arrival. That's great to have your number 10. Nice to have uh, Denny Villeneuve in there as well. Um, and it's funny, you know, I actually considered Dune for my list. Yeah, and Fifth um, Element and a few others. Yeah. Denny Villeneuve has had quite the uh, career. Yeah, and I just thought I needed to, I need to give it a Lucy. little more. Sorry? Lucy was that her the, the the one with Scarlett Johansson? Uh, was that uh, him? Because now, like Fifth Element, that was Luke Besson, I believe. Oh, I'm sorry, I got and it. I and I do that I as well. It. I do that as well. Yeah, um, I make my mistakes. Yep, yep, and um, and in fact, when 
I heard Dune was coming. I was like, oh yeah, well, I love Fifth Element. Uh, and then I realized, oh no, that's that's Villeneuve and not Besson. So I was, of course, confusing my French directors. Um, so my number 10 is Close Encounters of the Third Kind from 1977, directed and written by Steven Spielberg. That's uh, one of my John Williams scored films. Uh, it stars Richard Dreyfuss. Melinda Dillon, Francois Truffaut, Bob Balaban, and an early appearance by Lance Hendrickson. Um, it's funny, I've tried to dig out my videotapes uh, with, that give a little bit of a blurb for it, but uh, for Close Encounters, uh, I, I referred to uh, an archaic version of Hollywell's film guide, I think from 1980. And its little summation is a series of UFOs takes Indiana by surprise and a workman is led by intuition and detection to the landing site, which has been concealed from the public, which sounds like a really underwhelming pitch. Uh, I don't know that I would buy that based on, on that description. So why do I love close encounters of the third kind? Uh, the great thing about Spielberg for me is this. He loves every aspect of cinema. He, he has always been a student of Hitchcock and a master of editing, creating story through a series of shots. He, he can work so well visually. And so much of this film is, is, you know, it could almost be just a silent film. It's so wonderful visually. Um, but in Close Encounters, he examines the mysteries of the night sky and exposes more of his Kubrickian influences than maybe in any other of his films. It's still an incredible film to watch. Uh, it stands up really well. It's easy to forget that Close Encounters was made long before CGI as we know it. Uh, because it's a Spielberg film, it's not as cold as watching a Kubrick film. Watching the deterioration of Richard Dreyfuss's family life as he becomes obsessed with the extraterrestrial experiences is heartbreaking. While the close encounter in the final act is incredible, kind of like Fantasia meets 2001. The film also stars two of my favorite actresses of the era, Terry Garr, and Melinda Dillon. And so that's why I have Close Encounters on my list, David. Are you, were you ever a, a, sort of a fan of it uh, in a bigger way or just sort of was? Oh, absolutely. Passive? Yeah, absolutely. And it's really one of those underrated films. It's a classic and it, there's no issue with it being in the top 10 or even a top five list. What's cool is I was just looking up just to confirm the kind of the thing, uh, films and I went into the biography for Denis Villeneuve on um, IMDb and uh -huh. does mention some of his influences, including Steven Spielberg and Francois Truffaut and Close Encounters of the Third Kind is listed as one of his favorite films. Uh, and Truffaut actually acts in Close Encounters. Yes. He's very good in that. that the whole opening sequence and this is, there's just so much to Close Encounters. That's great. Now my number nine, if I can uh, go into that. Number nine. Number nine, I have Predator uh, from 1987. It's John McTiernan um, film. And for me, things like the music, uh, there's a scene in it because th there's this moment where someone is, is, um, in, is killed, I guess, or injured and, all of these people, they're in the jungle and they're trying to uh, do something unrelated to this predator. But this predator is an alien from another planet that is 
that is messing with them and they lose someone and then they start shooting into the forest Mm -hmm. and the others join the others in this company and they're all shooting and there's this moment and they even have this gun that's basically it's i can't remember the term for it but it's a gun that's normally on a helicopter like it's not something you're supposed to carry around with you Right. And one of them has is carrying is holding it in his hands and is firing into the forest with everyone else firing all at the same time for like a minute or a minute and a half in this film. And it's just such an iconic, powerful moment. Um, there's all the great catchphrases like I don't have time to bleed. And this jungle makes Cambodia look like Kansas and get to the chopper and all of these great little lines of course some of the greatest films always they refer to each other as one word like their last name these kinds of films and the predator itself is great so it's just one of the, that's why it's in my top 10 i have it as number nine predator is definitely uh worth it. even though it with the the movie and from 79 alien some of the effects may not be and the computers and what they're doing may not hold up to 2022 viewing. It still is a great film. You know, I have a confession to make. I have not seen Predator somehow. Um, In the late 80s, I was going out with somebody who loved art films. So all of a sudden, my genre films were like, like off the map I, I almost saw nothing that was like horror especially um and then soon after that uh not the same person but uh we had uh, youngsters around and so i wasn't getting out to see movies and when i brought videos home it, they tended not to be uh you know genre related mm. um so somehow predator is still a hole in my viewing so definitely i'm going to see it now that i know you rate it so highly and now is this would this be your favorite Schwarzenegger film? Do I have- do have another Schwarzenegger film on my list. All right, okay, uh, that's, that's a bit higher. Up, okay, Schwarzenegger has a lot of great um, genre films for sure. Yeah, I have seen Twins. Okay, and I have not. <laughs> that one I, think, I missed. I think you. I think you made the right decision on Predator versus Twins. <laughs> yep, yep. Okay, now what's okay. your number nine? My number nine is The Fly from 1986, uh, directed by David Cronenberg and starring Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. Uh, Of course, it's the remake of the 1958 original starring Vincent Price. Um, I I rewatched a number of these this week, and I was really blown away with the chemistry between uh, Gina Davis and Goldblum, who were a couple at the time. And um, you can tell. Like they're they, the the way they look at each other, even though you know scenes are shot with long points between different shots, but the look in their eyes towards each other is incredible. Uh, let me let me break down why I love this film. For me, this was the first film that really legitimized horror that it could could raise to almost uh, Shakespearean levels. Um, Cronenberg's The Fly, with its tragic performances from its star-crossed lovers, Goldblum and Davis, it really was heartbreaking, and I probably use that a lot. But I think that's one of the things that I need in whatever the genre is. I want some uh, some emotional stuff happening. Um, I thought their performances were Oscar-worthy, really. Um, you know, we're now in an era where genre does get nominated, but this was like 
whatever 30 years ago and and you just didn't even think about horror or sci-fi getting nominated um i saw it multiple times trying to figure out how it was done how had cronenberg reinvented an old b movie and made it feel like a shakespearean tragedy now i i don't care how he did it it was a profound parlor trick that i will watch again and again um it really does stand up very good and that's film that I, i will have to definitely watch and then just see if i remember ever having seen it because i think it was one of those ones that at the time it just didn't watch or maybe i just liked the original so much i didn't want it to be spoil like with vincent price right i just didn't want to but based on your recommendation i would definitely have to um see it yeah now it's funny i remember seeing it in the theater when it first came out and being unable to move during the credits you know like the the end happens very quickly and i was just mesmerized at at uh how good the film was it's funny i don't recall noticing this before but there is a point in the film where uh, Cronenberg echoes the famous line from the original, the help me, mm. which I guess is the end of the original film, isn't it, David, with uh, the, the, you know, the help me, help me. Right. Right. Um, but which was, was very powerful in the original, but Cronenberg ups it even more. There are some speeches in this film, like almost soliloquies, which again, makes it Shakespearean one. Sorry. One is where, uh, Jeff Goldblum's character, Brundle, Seth Brundle, is talking about insect politicians. Have you ever heard of insect politics? Neither have I. Insects don't have politics. They're very brutal. No compassion, no compromise. We can't trust the insect. I'd like to become the first insect politician. You see, I'd like to, uh, but I'm afraid. uh, I don't know what you're trying to say. I'm saying. Saying I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it, but now the dream is over and the insect is awake. No, sir. I'm saying. But along with things like that, he incorporates uh, the help me line. And it's not like that. It's just like he sort of, uh, um, Gina Davis comes to him and he started to mutate. And, and he just really desperately says to her, help me. And you realize, oh, this is, you know, paying off the original. But it's mm-hmm. done in such a desperate way that uh, your heart just sinks. Anyway, mm-hmm. I l- love that film. Okay. Where are we going next? uh, I'm going to go with my number eight. Now, this film 
was actually my number one film for like 40 years. And then just redoing and trying to figure out that we're going to be doing this episode and me rejuggling and trying to figure out and trying to see, does it actually belong still at number one in my mind, which it has been for, you know, decades. Right. And then I looked at it separately and just said, you know, can I really keep it at number one? And I finally realized, no, I can't. So the thing from another world from 1951, a Howard Hawks uh, film was my number one is currently now at number eight. This film is fantastic. Um, I love a lot of the lines and I, I just made a note of this. I don't have the exact quote, but basically there was this funny moment because they ended up finding the saucer and then then they try to release it but by doing so like from the ice because it's an ice and by doing that they actually accidentally destroy the thing so when someone then then i think one of the officers because this is uh um uh, run by the military it's sort of the military military and scientists working together but the military are in overall command uh very similar to stargate universe but when one of the people says, you're the only man to ever find and lose a flying saucer in one day, I always thought it was a very funny line. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff. And this is this dialogue that keeps going over. Like one of the things they mentioned when they, they had this on like Magic Shadows or on TCM or something, they're talking about how that this is an early film back in 51, where they actually had a lot of dialogue running over each other to make it sound like it's a real thing going on. If you're suddenly having these conversations something crazy is going on and you're doing all this. It just adds to the, to the uh, magic of it. The um, I think it's like D- D- Dimitri Tiomkin or something like that. I, think I, I should have done a bit more on this, but the music itself. Oh, very um, good. They use this special instrument that came up with this weird alien like sound. So like a theremin? Was, yes. A theremin yeah. they used. And it was just so, Oh, it's yeah. incredible. So this is a fantastic film. So let me see. So they, um, they, when they form, there's several scenes in it, like when they form a circle on the other, trying to figure out the shape of whatever this thing that landed and crashed into this lake. So they end up trying to, they can see it through the ice a bit. So they have enough people that they walk around trying to figure out, it's got wing, like what is the shape of it? And they're all in a perfect circle. And then they suddenly realize such a beautiful moment. Scientists and the military working together, the uh, intrepid reporter, the Geiger reading, the fact that you have a creature, just like in the movie Alien and in Jaw, the shark, shark in Jaws, where you actually don't see it until very near the end. So this is one where they're actually able to tell, based on Geiger readings, if this thing's approaching or not, which is as to suspense. So the, the, that idea of it, I think, was quite brilliant. So that's why I've got it at number eight. Um, what's your um, eight? Uh, well, I'll, I'll jump to it in a second. I just wanted to comment on how great that film is and, and how, yeah, I also have a, a pretty big love for the thing from another world. Um, and that the scene that you described when they're sort of like around the circumference mm-hmm. of the ship, um, that really blew my mind when I saw it in the last year or so, because, you know, we're used to most Hollywood films, especially of that era science fiction of that era was sort of lumped in with with b movie and that basically meant you had basic you had no budget really to work with you know you had guys in rubber suits or whatever and and just basically a shot it on a on a sound studio but that scene is remarkable because it looks like the scene the actual scene in the remake it looks like they are up in the arctic 
you know, like, and I was kind of blown away by how open that area looked. And I was like, where are they shooting this? Did they actually go up, you know, to the Arctic to shoot? Um, and I, I don't think so, but it, it looks like they did. And also, um, you know, a hat tip to uh, James Arness for his performance mm. uh, as the thing. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, he's it's, more famous from Gunsmoke. He's on for 20 plus years uh, yeah. as the sheriff. He's six foot five or whatever. And he was actually, that's one of his earlier roles, but he is the thing. Yeah. And, and it's just a wonderful film. It really, like, I can't imagine, in some ways, I can't imagine Carpenter's the thing without this coming first, because it seems to build on all of those elements from the original and sort of ups the ante, but you know, you can't have one without the other, I would say. Yeah. And I've mentioned that, that, that uh, just to quickly finish off the thing is that I do want to do a podcast on the thing where we actually look at this film, the thing from 82, the 2011 one with the, um, uh, Winstead, um, and really original short story. And, yeah. and look at those as one episode. And I think Bev Vincent may be perfect for that, but we may have to find someone else because Bev had mentioned that he likes the 1982 thing as one of his favorite films. Maybe that was his number one science fiction film. And he had not seen the original thing from Another World from 1951. So if he sees that, I think he would like it. <laughs> yeah. And let me just uh, sort of uh, comment again on how tough it was to put this list together. I've, I've often heard with, uh, for those who don't know, um, this is sort of a Canadian uh, originating podcast. We're out of Canada. So we think about hockey quite often. And I I remember hearing stories about how in any given uh, national hockey competition, Canada could easily um, put out two full teams um, to represent the national team. And that's sort of what it's like with this list. It's like, I can't, and it's like, sometimes people don't make the team that are all-stars. And for mm. me, I was like, kept looking at my list and going, how do I not have Carpenter's The Thing here? And I'm sort of giving a bit of a spoiler there, but I don't have Carpenter's The Thing. And I love that film, but I realized it, it, it as much as like, if I was doing an, an objective list, I think it would be on my top 10. But in terms of my subjective sort of like comfort food type of uh, sci-fi films, it didn't quite make it, but it's, it was definitely up for consideration. So let me go on to my number eight. Yeah. Uh, and it, I'm still in the same ballpark of the fly and the thing because I have Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But this might be a little controversial, David, because I know you're definitely a big fan of the original, as am I. But I actually prefer the 1978 version uh, directed by Philip Kaufman and written by W.D. Richter, who wrote, uh, who directed Buckaroo Banzai. Um, and that starred Donald Sutherland, Jeff Goldblum, Leonard Nimoy, Brooke Adams, and Veronica Cartwright. And it's, that cast just works mm-hmm. so well together and makes the premise believable. Um, and it's nice because it has a... Uh, it has a cameo by Kevin McCarthy, the star of the original, as well mm. as I believe it's Don Siegel, who was the director of the original. Uh, he, he is a cab driver in it. Yeah. So I may have to give a rewatch to that film based on your recommendation. Oh, I did watch it originally when it came out. Yeah. And, and Donald Sutherland is one of my favorites. Uh, that Murder by Decree, where he plays the psychic. 
in there is fantastic and everything else he's been in. And he's perfect for it because he really underplays what's going on. Um, and he's sort of a, a skeptic at first. Okay. Yeah, so-, so I'll, I'll cover my invasion one from the original one later once I get to it, cause it's not the same film. So I will cover that at, at nice. my number five, but my number seven is total recall. Um, we haven't overlapped yet, and we will at some point probably closer towards our top five list. But Total Recall is a 1990 film with a Paul, directed by Paul Ver, Verhaven or Verhoeven. Um, I'm trying to remember if he's the director that I think he was like European. They were unsure if he would be able to do major or big ones. But I think he is he the one that directed Robocop. So yeah, Robocop, Basic Instinct, yeah. Yeah. Showgirls. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So Switch he was someone that I remember when Robocop came out that there was concerns and then, and then he just, you know, based on maybe what he had done before, whether or not he could actually do Robocop and it did so well. But Total Recall is in my, is my seventh uh, favorite film. If I'm not me, who the hell am I? He's got a Welcome to Johnny Cab. Drive. Where can I take you tonight? <laughs> Please fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> I want Quaid delivered alive for reimplantation. That's for making me come to Mars. You wouldn't hurt me. After all, we're married. Consider that a divorce. Now we need to do a podcast. This will be weird, but this podcast would be based on not just the film, but a three-minute or two-minute sequence in it where where the main character um, is going, Schwarzenegger's character is going to recall to get the implant because it's basically a thing where it's like a video game where you can actually go in, you can live another life, you just get this thing, they put, put in this cartridge, and then you're actually in something where you're like a spy or you're like a... Uh, a daredevil or karate expert, whatever you are, sort of similar to the matrix where they go and load these various programs and you can actually do this stuff. And the big thing with total recall was, was it a dream or not? And there's a sequence where he gets it, where they're going to put this thing in, but then everything goes crazy after that. But the fact that they put in something and I'm not even sure if he even hears it, but they mention, Oh, interesting choice. It's called Blue Sky on Mars. And there's all these things where, oh, it's so cool. You you end up having to fight this. You get the girl. You have to free the Martian. You have to do, and they actually talk about what will happen in the rest of the film. But this rest of the film is actually this cartridge of this loaded program that he's going to. But then they part of it is they say, well, no, we can't. We didn't even have time to load it because he had already been to Mars. And then that whole thing. But is that actually part of the program? So the whole thing about it is worth, I think, a pod. It's it's brilliant. So again, the question is: Was it a dream or not, Rachel Tocotin, or was it an implanted memory? Um, There's a lot of layers to the film. Um, uh, A lot of great actors in it. Michael Uh, Ironside. 
Yes, Michael Ironson, they, they refer to it as the greatest mind fuck yet because they actually have to get around it because the aliens, the, the people on Mars who are mutating because of issues there can actually read minds and they have a character named Quaid that they're trying to kill. The, the people from Earth are trying to kill Quaid, but they can never get close. So they realize that, hey, why not erase the person's memory, put in something else? So therefore, when they try to scan them, they they don't know and so on. So I may have given a, but up maybe a bit too much of the plot. Uh, so oh, apologies for that, but it's definitely number eight for me. Now uh, I've mentioned Michael Ironside was in it. Who's one of those great um, genre uh, character actors and starship troopers. Yeah. And I meant to mention that in invasion of the body snatchers, uh, Art Hindle is in it. Uh, mm-hmm. Who we remember from uh, black Christmas and other Canadian films, um, right. but uh, it was so nice to see him in in that film and and giving him quite a decent role too. Yep, yep. Okay, so am I? I'm on to seven, right? Yep. Okay, so this one I I struggled with having in here um, because in it feels like it's one of the weak sisters of my list, but it's still you know got a charm for me and definitely a big soft spot. So. I, I, this was my first rewatch because I really felt like I needed to have a look at it to see if it deserved to be here. And it did. And it is at number seven. I have Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Scotty, I need warp speed in three minutes or we're all dead. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me, marooned for all eternity, buried alive, buried alive. Sean! Sean! At the end of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Uh, directed by Nicholas Mayer, the music's by James Horner, and of course, starring Shatner, Nimoy, and uh, Ricardo Montalban as Khan, and Kirstie Alley is in it as well. Why do I love this film? Well, Star Trek, the motion picture, was a treat when it was released. Um, it was Star Trek on the big screen for the first time, but it was really nothing to write home about. But the sequel gave us what we really wanted. The Enterprise regulars pitted against a worthy adversary, Ricardo Montalban's Khan. So we are treated to a story that feels like something from the original TV show. And of course, it was based on uh, Space Seed from season one of uh, Star Trek, and it aired February 1967. Um, But it goes somewhere we would never have dreamt of. We get an Act 3 death that still chokes me up after 40 years and i swear to god the last 10 minutes of that film give me chills and, and brings tears to my eyes even though i know it's coming um and i i don't want to spoil more than that because if you haven't seen it you really should and you really should experience the way the film wraps up um in some ways it's maybe the least sophisticated looking of all the films on my list but god i love this film david 
Yeah, and it definitely is a well-deserving one for top 10. And it was kind of neat about the even-numbered Treks because Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home with Saving the Whales on Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, were also very strong. And even the Star Trek First Contact, which was the second film of the Generations set of four films, was very good. So, yeah, definitely worth being in the list. For me, I've got number six. We haven't even overlapped yet. Um, number six I have is Planet of the Apes from 1968. There's been a lot of ape films, and they redid the whole thing with Mark Wahlberg, and then they've had a number of films since. And the whole franchise, the original four or five films, uh, even that second one with James Franciscus, who I thought was, well, they, they just didn't have Charlton, couldn't have Charlton Heston back, and they just thought, why not just have someone that sort of looks like him, but he is so good in the second one. And then, of course, Heston does show up and it just is such a strong film. But that first one is just amazing. Yeah. Um, let me just see my points of it or the design of the ship, the unlikable astronauts and how they mm. converse with each other and what they're like. How do they not realize it's not really Earth that they're on? Okay, so I'm glad that you did that spoiler alert earlier. <laughs> um, so um, iconic lines again, Roddy McDowell, Kim Hunter, um, you know, get your damn dirty paws off me, you stinking, whatever the, the, the exact phrase is. Like there's yeah. just so many great moments in that film and, and you don't even see the first ape until like, 20 or 30 or 40 minutes into the film like it's it's really it's, it still stands up and yeah. the music is great in it too um definitely worth a, a look-see yeah that first act is really remarkable with the like sort of from the um the crash landing in the water um until the the hunt the hunt scene and i think that's about like it's pushing 30 minutes Mm. which which is remarkable that they you know took their time and patience with that setup where uh you know in some ways it felt like a really uncomfortable road trip right cuz cuz the bickering that goes on is just awful <laughs> You know, and it feels like you might might as well be in the back of like a VW or something with some some friends, and it's gone wrong. The trip has gone wrong. The air conditioning has broken, and now you've got to listen to them bitch at each other. Um, so this was actually my number one film, which again took some consideration because um, as much as it has aged well, uh, certainly it it doesn't. It looks nothing like a 21st century science fiction film. Uh, here are my notes on why I love it. Um, I said that King Kong was my first favorite film as a kid. I developed a soft spot for all things Simeon. So when I discovered Planet of the Apes as a kid, it was love at first sight. And I discovered the films all at once. I believe CBS was airing them in one week, like one each night. Um, uh, so I say that... Um, I, I did discover them all at once. So it was difficult not including Beneath and Conquest in my top 10. In fact, mm. when I did my original, like just off the top of my head, top 10, I had Beneath and Conquest there. And then I realized I can't do that. This That's like, I'm, you know, there's must be two other films that I can put in its place, but I do quite like those films. Uh, there was never a time in my life that I didn't like Planet of the Apes. 
I rooted for astronauts Taylor and Brent. I appreciated their ape accomplices, uh, Cornelius and Zira, and I feared the gorillas Ursus and Urko from the TV show. Um, in high school, when I was really getting involved with the Twilight Zone, I learned that the show's creator, Rod Serling, was a co-writer of the original Planet of the Apes, and it deepened my love of the film series. Uh, the original has so much going for it, the action involving stranded astronauts and persecuting apes, uh, the social commentary, the incredible makeup, costumes, sets, the Jerry Goldsmith score, and that incredible O. Henry ending. Um, which, the court you know, scene also. Right. The court scene is is sort of a parody of those kinds of things where you put someone right. on trial when they shouldn't be. And this, yeah, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no <laughs> evil bit. Um, and I think, you know, when we did our Planet of the Apes show with uh, Robert G. Sawyer, um, you know, I think we all talked about how we would love to be able to see the original film for the first time and have that O. Henry ending hit us, you know, for the first time freshly and have it floor us. I cannot imagine being in a theater at the time and just, it happens, you get the ending and then the credits roll and you're left numb. Anyway, that's why it, it eventually becomes my number one. But my, my number six then is alien from 1979. Um, Directed by Ridley Scott, starring Sigourney Weaver, Tom Skerritt, Veronica Cartwright, Harry Dean Stanton, John Hurt, Ian Holm. Uh, is it Yafit Koto? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Yafit Koto, I think. He, he's amazing. Because he was in Homicide Life on the Street and yep. in a Bond film. He's very good. And, um, of course, music by Jerry Goldsmith again. Uh, why do I love it? Why is it? What is not to love about this master class in terror and suspense? The tagline for the film said it all. In space, no one can hear you scream. And oh yes, you will scream as one by one, members of the Nostromo, essentially a space garbage truck, get picked off one by one by the titular alien. Uh, we all know the various set pieces of the film, but it's the spaces in between those moments that make the film so relentless. And when you pair that with another perfect score by Jerry Goldsmith, your nerves are done for. It's another reason I love the film um, is that the crew of the Nostromo and the ship itself both feel real. Both are gritty and warren. They're not the sterile all-mod cons of 2001's uh, ship Discovery. But of course, we get Ellen Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, a great heroine uh, of science fiction cinema. Um, so that was my number six. And yeah, I couldn't believe that, you know, because there are so many greats that it was at number six. <laughs> yep. So uh, for that one, uh, you have uh, Alien is number six. Alien is my number one. Um, originally it was a thing from another world, but I moved Alien up to number one. Uh, it's 1979. A part of it is just the tense moments that to see, not see the actual thing that's, uh, killing them. The whole scene where the alien first has been incubated and shows up is quite amazing. Um, the cast, a great cast, the suspense, 
There's some people who said, well, no, no, Alien isn't a science fiction film. It's a horror film. These people are idiots. It's the same people that say that Star Wars isn't science fiction. It's somehow space opera or fantasy or something like that. So right. um, just if, you know, if someone says that, then, then question anything that comes out of their mouths. Yeah. Um, there are some people who like the sequel better. They like Aliens better than Alien. And I can see that. And I appreciate yeah. The fact that Aliens, the sequel, is a very good film, and you could actually have mm -hmm. Alien and Aliens in your top ten. Sure. Um, I am the classic person. I like the Alien film better. Some people didn't refer to Aliens as it's more like just a combat thing set in space. No, it is a science fiction film. And it's also, when you talk about a sequel, like a second film in a series, just like Terminator 2, Sometimes the sequel is an amazing film or Die Hard and Die Hard 2. Like sometimes the second one is really good. Like it just, yeah. it's its own film. It's different, but it's brilliant. So I don't want to take anything away from the sequel from Aliens because Aliens is amazing. But my heart stays with the original Alien. Definitely. And now, I know, should go to my, yeah, go ahead. Please. I just want to say it, it certainly, you know, sets the template for the franchise because I also actually quite like uh, Alien 3, although most people kind of get lost on that. But it's a David Fincher film, and I don't think David Fincher has ever made uh, anything less than a very good film or great film. Um, and also, uh, we, sh we need to sort of give a tip of the hat to the whole H.R. Geiger in inspired images that we get, you know, the look of the alien and even the look of the Nostromo. Um, it's just, uh, it's, it is nightmarish. Absolutely. It's, it's definitely broke. Like, like with the original star Wars alien broke the mold and it was basically a film of its time. Just, you know, it was so there was just nothing like it. Yeah. Now I've got as my number five, I've got Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1956 version directed by Don Siegel that starred uh, Kevin McCarthy. Um, and for that one, that one originally was my number two film overall, but I moved it down to number five and rethinking about things. The horror, the idea of someone being replaced um, not knowing if that person is you, it's, it sort of goes back to the thing uh, and certainly the sequel, the, um, the John Carpenter one, where you've actually don't know if something's been taken over and it's a duplicate. And you see that in some other films as well. Um, the idea that you can go to sleep and when you wake up, you're not who you were. Uh, that's sort of the communist or the idea, the underpinnings, the kiss, um, the, the um, ending of the of the film where they actually t attached on, but it actually made sense what they did because originally it was ending with a, sort of on a darker note and they decided to change it a bit. But regardless, uh, a very strong film. Oh, it's great. And um, the cast is wonderful. And Kevin McCarthy, uh, his, his portrayal in that really captures the paranoia. It was actually probably like way up there for years. And if you'd asked me in the 1980s, uh, this film might've been my number one or number two of, of science fiction. Um, I, I just, I, I still really do love it. And um, like, well, it still said, holds up. 
That's yeah, the big I'm, thing. If you watch it today, you are still as tense and as horrified and as scared and wanting to follow the characters and what they're trying to do. I mean, it starts so innocuously with him being the doctor and a kid comes in and they're saying, well, you know, talk to him because there's something wrong with him. He doesn't think his parents are his parents and so on. And just adding elements after element, just like in Back to the Future and other things where you, if you're writing the screenplay, you do it perfectly because you set up these little seeds that come back. Quite yep. brilliant. And unlike a lot of uh, science fiction of that era, um, it doesn't rely heavily on the look of monsters or whatever to age, right? Like that's the problem with a lot of that stuff is, you know, you watch it now and it, it doesn't age well because of the effects or the looks. We don't get a lot to look at in Invasion. It's all about what is implied and the fear and that stuff is forever. You know? Yeah, and what uh, is done well, the effects still hold, like those pods, those, oh, those the pods human side pods still yeah. look great. Yeah. Yep. Um, and that, uh, you know, that just the ending of the film is, is frightening. Sometimes in that that era, David, as you know, a poster would be created and then the film would be based on the poster, right? <laughs> they would have a title and they would have a look and it's like, hey, go make a film based on this. Now, I believe there was there was a short story that it was based on, right? But the poster looks like the still of um, the main character and the main uh, female lead uh, running away. And that's a shot, like that's a shot that we get towards the very end before they, I think, get on the truck, as I recall, but I might be wrong about that. Um, anyway, and it's, it's a great image. And in fact, when the, the sequel was made in the, not the sequel, but the remake was made in the 70s, they picked up on that. They have in the poster uh, the group of the main characters running, and that shot is also in the film towards the end. Um, so they knew what, what worked in that first film, like that's a great image of these characters on the run. Mm. All right. So we're, uh, Oh, we need my number five. Yeah. Well, mine, this works out well because my number five is your number four. And my number five is Blade Runner, which we've done an entire show on, uh, came out in 1982, directed by Ridley Scott, uh, music by Vangelis, starring Harrison Ford, Sean Young, Rutger Howard, Daryl Hannah, um, why do I love it? It was a perfect mix of sci-fi meets film noir. Uh, on the one hand, there was an undeniable sexuality in the film um, with its visuals as well as its young leads, but it was balanced by questions of existentialism. Uh, Blade Runner was a human powder keg or a replicant powder keg, if you prefer. Uh, we'd never seen anything like it and we couldn't take our eyes off of it. We still can't. Harrison Ford was fortunate to inhabit the roles of three science fiction legends, Han Solo, Indiana Jones, if you want to go that, let's say genre, I guess, uh, and Rick Deckard. Um, Deckard is my favorite because he is the most vulnerable, uh, the most human, even if he is a replicant. How about you, Dave? What do you have to say about that with Blade Runner in your four spot? Yeah, yeah Blade Runner is number four for me. And the cast, again, the plot, we did do that episode um, uh, last year with uh, Charmaine Challenger as our guest. 
um, the Voigt Kampf test, the question of whether or not you were, if you, what, what if you were a robot and didn't know it, which also reminds me of sort of the Battlestar Galactic, the BSG reboot uh, with um, uh, Edward James Olmos, who was kind of cool, is also in, of course, Blade Runner, um, where you have robots and in some cases aren't activated yet it's almost got you that sense of you being that russian spy in um, the manchurian candidate where Uh you could be someone who has actually been changed and then you're not who you are and you're activated so some of the people in bsg and and of course in blade runner one of the characters without trying to spoil too much maybe a replicant or robot android kind of thing that but doesn't know it and has other memories that have been implanted um ritger hauer of course uh is fantastic too and sean young and the whole cast so yeah definitely blade runner i think and the visual and just when it came out and what it's done it would be you'd have to make a very strong case anyone if you look at science fiction films, separate out the fantasy and horror and anything else. But if you look at straight science fiction films, if Blade Runner isn't in your top five, then I would start to wonder, well, what are your top five then? Right. And those top five would be pretty darn good films because that's how good Blade Runner is. Uh, Number four, I go to my favorite of all of the Star Wars films, which is The Empire Strikes Back. Um, you know, it's, well, I'll, I'll stick to some of my notes here. First of all, it's 1980. It was directed by Irving Kirshner, written by Lawrence Kasdan and Lee Brackett. Of course, music by John Williams. Why do I love it? It was magical back in 1980 to see a sequel rise to the expectations created by a film that was a true cultural phenomenon. and then surpass the original film. Empire betters Star Wars in every way, deepening relationships, storylines, and doubling down on the drama and action. My first theatrical viewing of The Empire Strikes Back is a highlight of my movie-going experiences. Uh, The film both began and ended with an intense sense of anticipation. It's a film that pays off at every turn, and unlike other sequels in the history of the franchise, it will not let you down. Um, I watched this last night. Um, it's just great. It's unbelievable the way this movie trucks along from uh, from point to point, and uh, and it, it clocks in at something like two hours and five minutes, which is unheard of now for for a blockbuster you know everything has to be two and a half hours to three hours long uh they nail this by by getting all of the things that they do in that film in in about two hours and five minutes yeah i guess we're moving on Uh yeah i'm gonna go to my number three and this one can easily be in the top top five or ten of anyone and it could even be number one i wouldn't have any issue with it um this film is so much better than it should be it's back to the future uh, from 1985, Robert Zemeckis, um, it's rated, like I also wrote down just next to my choice of films, the actual rating on IMDb, this is the highest rated film out of all of the films that we basically uh, pretty much listed wow. uh, as an 8.6. Now, Back to the Future, let me just grab my notes for a minute. Originally, I had it as my number five, but I adjusted it down to number three. 
um, I mean, upward, I guess, to number three overall. This is about as perfect a film as you can imagine. And if you were actually cared or had any interest or wanted to learn or understand screenwriting and want to, this is a master class in, in, in a screenplay. Because every element right from the beginning, the first five minutes or seven minutes of the film is just like Chekhov's gun or what I call referred to as Sulu's phaser. If you show, if Sulu's phaser shows up in the first scene, it's supposed to stun someone by the third act kind of thing, you know, which is a, yeah. a pun on Chekhov's gun is supposed to then go off. If you see a gun over a mantle in a play yeah. in scene one, it's supposed to then be used and shoot someone by the third act. So in this one, Almost every element at the beginning, whether or not it's the clock tower, whether it's the um, that dance that they talk about, whether or not it's your parents and how they first talk about how they first met, whether it's a skateboard, um, whether it's um, hanging out with your with with someone that's a, a scientist, and then. And then you've got this announcement of this mayor who's running again, and you've got like there's like 10 or 15 or 20 different elements, things that are going on that are mentioned very quickly and, and go on. He ends up someone's talking about save the clock tower. And we wanted to end up spending some money to actually get the thing working because a certain period of time years ago, lightning struck it and it stopped working. And he keeps that flyer, which means everything. Yes. And because his girlfriend writes her number or does something on the back or talks something about it and you get these characters and so on. And then you've got the whole instance of him having to go back in time. And then all of that has to be recreated. And it's got that brilliance, just like in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where you have to put the key behind that sign, where it's got all of these things having to do with all these elements in time travel that, I mean, it's just, I can just go on and on. So my notes here is, yeah, a fantastic screenplay can be used to teach screenwriting. Um, the characters are fantastic. You've, you, you put the character in a situation where they have obstacles being thrown at them, and you also have all these tasks to create. He has to get his parents to, to kiss or, or to connect, because if they don't, he will not be born. Um, so, yeah, there's just so much to this film that it can easily so i've got it as number three but this can easily be yeah. number one um you know and the thing about robert zemeckis is i feel like he is somehow uh underappreciated um because when you look at his body of work here's just a few of the films so back to the future forrest gump Castaway. Uh, of course the whole back to the future i guess he did two and three uh who framed roger rabbit um i'm skipping ahead here uh, Contact, which is actually a film I quite like. Oh, that's um, that's fantastic. Yeah, uh, the recent film, uh, which was science fiction with Tom Hanks, Finch. Uh, just, but anyway, I've I've always liked his stuff. But Back to the Future is really dependent on its performances to sell the premise. And God, it's it's just a perfect cast. And yeah. and you gotta love uh, Leah Thomas Tom Thompson. What's her name? <laughs> yeah, uh, Leah Thompson or Lee Thompson. Uh, yeah. Um, Who's also in Howard the Duck and I will watch anytime because she's in it. 
Yeah, and with uh, Michael J. Fox, it's kind of neat because I think from what I had read, Eric Stoltz was originally the character and he just didn't have the same comic or the emotion or be able to carry the scenes. And they actually, it wasn't like he they tried him out for a day and it didn't work. They, they had a lot uh, in the can and had spent a week or two or maybe even a month filming and they just said, this isn't working. And then they brought in Michael J. Fox and of course, Christopher Lloyd, um is great so it's it's a great cast for sure okay i will go on to my number three which is children of men uh children of men was released in 2006 it was directed by alfonso caron stars uh clive owen juliana moore and michael kane the film this is paraphrasing wikipedia by the way uh for the synopsis the film takes place in 2027 when two decades of human infertility have left society on the brink of collapse refugees seek sanctuary in the uk where they are subjected to detention in government gulags owen plays civil servant uh theo theron who must help refugee key escape the chaos um yeah this is probably uh, maybe the biggest surprise for my list in a way, because I don't think it's always appreciated. Um, why do I love it? It's near future dystopia that covertly is telling a version of the nativity story with Clive Owen as a reluctant badass Joseph. Uh, you feel for his characters. He is drawn into the drama until there is no way out for him. Michael Caine's performance is one of my favorites of his, his in a career that is filled with great performances. Uh, there are scenes that feel so real, I can't help but duck and flinch, even though I've seen the film a dozen times. And there's a, an act three scene that is awe-inducing. So much of the film is dismal and horrifying, yet it manages to find a way to offer us an ending that is both hopeful and uplifting. And uh, that's a, a big thing for me, too. I don't always need it to be hopeful and uplifting, but I think maybe that's the reason the thing didn't make the cut for me, because uh, it is very bleak. But I still love the thing. Uh, so that's my number three, David, Children of Men. And what's weird, I don't know if this is going to happen or what's going on, but I wonder if our number twos are the same. Otherwise, um, we've got a different one so i'm going to do my number two sure uh my number two is 2001 a space odyssey because i've already mentioned how i had alien as number one now these could be interchangeable because 2001 set such an early standard and and was such a tremendous film and a lot of our guests on our podcast because we ask our guests you know, what are your favorite film your tv series and so on and sort of like, because we like to know, you know, what it is that that are their favorites. So maybe other people can look into it. Many people have picked 2001 as their favorite film. And there's a lot of reasons why. HAL 9000 is one big reason. The monolith, the mission, the um, the great lines, a one an ending that is you have to see to believe. Um, this is a film that's 54 years ago. If I have my math right, 1968 is 2022 now during, yeah. while we're recording this, this is 54 years old and it still stands up to today. Like even all of the yeah. effects and everything else other than with my, now I just bought it sort of as a gift to ourselves, uh, a 4k sort of like 55 inch TV. And you can sort of see 
the the when the space thing as as you see the discovery one going through you can see squares of sort of lighter background uh, composites or how they, however they did the effects you can see a bit of it on the on the ultra high kind of thing but even then you know i just set that aside and just say well you know you can only do so much but right. that is that um, is it's number one on so many lists and and for good reason and even the ending is so brilliant and strange and unusual and was sort of like people as as we had talked about that we did do 2001 recently as a podcast episode uh, as a two-parter I think with um, Mark Asquith and Robert J. Sawyer and that there were people who left during the intermission, halfway through the thing, thinking, what the hell is this? And just left. And they did, of course, to be fair, they, uh, the, the director did go back in and cut like 10 or 20 minutes of it and just say, you know what, I'm going to fix this up a bit before it actually gets a white, before it gets officially released or before it, before more people see it. He, he did do some things because people left saying, what the hell is this? Right. Yeah, and and some of that was just length, you know, like supposedly the the jogging scene, and in, in, at one point was like eleven minutes long. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the famous scene with with prehistory and and their and the, the monolith and and how the early man ends up developing and changing for some people that were back then, um, even then because films were slower back then, um, yeah. people just couldn't take. Yeah, and. I, I do want to sort of underscore or make the point that I definitely am a person who appreciates 2001. It's not that I don't like it. It's just that, um, you know, it, it always leaves me a little cold, but you know, if somebody came to me and said, uh, Troy, we need you to either curate, we've never seen science fiction and we need you to curate a film festival of the top 10 films in the, in the genre or, um, we need you to teach a course at uh, university on, yeah. you know, the best, f- it would be number one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and also you throw Metro Metropolis. There's a number of films that aren't because these are just our own favorites or, or reasons why we like specific films, yeah. but you're right. Of course I would throw 2001 in there if it wasn't on my list because yeah. it's a required one along with Metropolis. Yeah, for sure. And they, the earth stood still and Forbidden Planet, and maybe a number of other, and then you eventually get into whatever, to find a top 10, considering how many good ones have been done recently, um, is difficult, but you're, you're absolutely right. But you're number two, and, and I know that, is, that, and I appreciate you saying that it's not in your top 10, but it is definitely a great film. Uh, yeah. What is your number two? In 1975, he directed Jaws, In 1978, he directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In 1981, he directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now, Steven Spielberg brings us E.T., the Extraterrestrial. We will witness the arrival, the search, the desertion, The fear. The discovery. The friendship. I'm keeping you. The secret. 
the love. The warning. The signal. The mystery. The danger. The intrusion. The wonderment. The enchantment. The hope. The connection has been made. Universal Pictures presents Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Uh, so it's E.T. Uh, from 1982, um, written by uh, Melissa Matheson, music by John Williams again, uh, starring Henry Thomas, D. Wallace, Drew Barrymore, Peter Coyote, and uh, Patricia Welsh supplied the voice of E.T. Why do I love it? Uh, it is pretty much a perfect film. And as an 80s Spielberg film, it's almost all lovable. <laughs> the kids, the alien, the familiar suburban setting, Dee Wallace as the struggling single mom, the John Williams score, Gertie saying penis breath, E.T. getting tanked, a surprise cameo by Yoda, even the blatant product placement. It's all lovable. Has my heart ever not soared when the BMX bikes take to the sky? No. Have I ever watched the film and not secretly wiped a tear or 20 away from my cheek as Gertie and Elliot say goodbye to their extraterrestrial friend? No, I have not. In a genre that often used, used at one point, used to check its emotions at the door in favor of big ideas and talk of wormholes and nebulas and quantum what's-its, E.T. fully embraced the heart of our inner child. And that's why E.T. is my number two. well said it also broke ground like sometimes you look at films and how they broke ground and how they opened up whole new vistas and with things like the um uh, 2001 a space odyssey star wars the new uh, a new hope which blew everything out of the water et was hugely successful and just opened the door even wider for people, even more than Close Encounters and some of the other films of its time. It, it was absolutely a monster at the box office and everyone loved it. And it just brought more audiences to it. It just opened up science fiction that much more. So it's it's that important a film. Now, the only thing the concern I have a bit is when they redid a bit of they, they, I don't know what it was, whether it's political correctness or something else, but there are versions of the film where they ended up changing it so that the police officers and, and, and whomever near the end of the film that you're concerned, are they going to stop someone or are they going to do something? They no longer have guns oh, on their belts. They have right. walkie talkies. Right. I forgot about that. That was a thing recently. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and unfortunately, because of the success of E.T., I, I had heard Mick Garris um, talking about uh, The Thing, which came out slightly after E.T. Um, and he said, you know, one of the reasons we didn't do well at the box office. Now, this he didn't direct 
the thing. That was Carpenter, but he was um, involved with the promotion of the thing. Uh, he said that one of the reasons the thing upon its initial release did not do well is people all of a sudden wanted warm and fuzzy aliens. They didn't want, they didn't want, you know, something as frightening as what we got in the thing. Mm. Um, which is unfortunate because it's, I mean, I think nowadays the thing is appreciated as one of the all time classics, but at, at the time it was sort of forgotten for a while. Yeah, and I, I still, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I do want to do uh, an episode, our podcast, on The Thing. And it would be not just the Carpenter one, but the original Howard Hawks one, the 2011 one, and also the original short story, because I think it's worth it. And that 1982 film, which goes closer to the actual original story, Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr., is amazing. It is just so good that... You know, at some point I may have to just cave in and and pick it higher than my original, the thing from another world, which I rank higher than it. Um, right. One thing I wanted to just mention quickly is just I did ask my wife Alexa about her top ten science fiction films, and it's neat how four of them are are ones that I already have. Now this alphabetical because she didn't really have time to just go. I just mentioned it to her this morning, and she just gave me a list of her top 10 without it being in any specific order, even though I know that back to the future is probably her, one of her favorite films of all time, but hers are 2001 space Odyssey, the original alien film. And she also has aliens on it because that's just a great film back to the future, blade runner, close encounters, Mad Max fury road. And she don't, don't send any hate or anything about, you know, it's not Mad Max. It's not the Road Warrior, <laughs> but um, Mad Max Fury Road was a great one in that sequence of uh, oh yeah Mad Max films. Um, uh, Star Wars Episode Four, a uh, Terminator Two, uh, Judgment Day, and also one that I haven't seen yet, but I will see it with her. Peggy Sue got married. Oh yeah, um, she has in there. Now it's funny, uh, like with Fury Road, it's actually mentioned in that book that I had mentioned that I had uh, mentioned earlier in the film, the One Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die. It, it was listed as one of the best sci-fi films. Well, well, what's what's odd, and this because I do trust the rating. I trust, of course, my own judgment and judgment of others, and how you want to rate something. And sometimes some people rate it a certain way, and others don't, and so on, blah blah blah. But overall. If you like a certain thing better than something else and you go into the rating system under IMDb or other rating systems, it generally reflects that. So for this, what's cool is that for these Mad Max, I didn't write write down what the rating was, but I think it was the lowest, the the, the one that was the um, the original Turner. Oh, no, 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 no. That was a Thunderdome. Thunderdome. Thunderdome was like a 6.2. So it was the lowest of them. And a lot of people don't like it because it didn't, the original two Mad Max ones, which were in 1979, there was the original one called Mad Max. And then there was Road Warrior, which is 1981. These were all made fairly on the cheap in Australia with an independent person. Yeah. Exactly. The original Mad Max has a rating of about 6.9. The Road Warrior is 7.6. Fury Road is an 8.1. They did a good job of it, but I respect the fact that people like how those original ones were done. And I also don't want to throw shade on the Road Warrior because there's a lot of good stuff in the role yeah. story, but I can yeah. totally see how it just does not fit in with the style and what happened in those original Australian oh, yeah. 
films. It just doesn't really fit in, but it's still the same character and, yeah. and, and a fair amount of it does. And there's a lot of good stuff in it. And I, I do respect it. And I do think, but I, I, I totally understand people yeah. who will not, who, I, uh, will, who will, you know, just not like it. Yeah. I'm definitely a fan of all four. Um, I mean, yeah. Thunderdome definitely felt Hollywood. Um, yeah, yeah. but, but I did really like, uh, Master Blaster. Um, yes. I don't know if you remember that, that whole character situation, but. And the um, emotion there where you see what the, the characters sort of actually like. So before we, do you want to do our outsider ones first, or do you want to recap our top 10? First? Oh yeah. Yeah. So let me just do a quick recap. So I'll just quickly do my 10 very fast because we're yep. running out of yeah, time. Just the titles. We've already at 50 and 30 minutes. So just quickly oh, we'll be good. titles. Yeah. My number 10 was arrival. Number nine was predator. Number eight was a thing from another world. Number seven, uh, total recall. Number six, planet of the apes. Uh, number five, invasion of the body snatchers. Number four, blade runner. Number three, back to the future. Number two, 2001 a space Odyssey. Number one, alien. And I was number 10, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Number nine, the 1986 remake of The Fly. Uh, number eight, the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Number seven, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Number six, Alien. Uh, number five, Blade Runner. Number four, The Empire Strikes Back. Number three, Children of Men. Number two, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. And number one, the Planet of the Apes, the original. I'm not talking about uh, the Burton version. Our last point is just some of the honorable mentions. So do you want to start with some of the things that you were thinking that didn't make your top 10, but are worth mentioning? Well, uh, you know, I'm going to mention the one that I struggled with the most, and it is Superman 2. Um, and in the long run, I'll say I'm going to wait till the day that we actually do a, a superhero listing. Um but I really love that film. I love Terrence Stamp in it as Zod. Um, but it, it has a fascinating story in that the, both Superman and Superman 2, like uh, Back to the Future 2 and 3, were shot at the same time. Uh, so Superman 2 was being shot, uh, and then they had to stop because uh, they had reached basically their release date for Superman 1. Um, and then they ended up firing uh, the director, Richard Donner, uh, and bringing on Richard Lester of Beatles fame, who did Help and Hard Day's Night, um, to, to complete the film. Um, and, I, you know, despite all the weirdness that went into making Superman 2, uh, I still really quite like it. So, uh, anyway, that's Superman 2. Do you, do you want me to just list off my others, Dave? Or Yeah, sure. Sure. Okay, then. Um, I, I realized, as I mentioned, the two... Spielberg films that were in my top 10, that Jurassic Park easily could have been there as well. Uh, Logan's Run was one of them. Um, that was a childhood fave and one that I've, uh, you know, still do quite like. Donnie Darko um, is one that blows my mind. There's a few that are kind of like have psychological elements to them, like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, that was in there. And Vanilla Sky sort of almost of their own uh, genres where like reality bends. And I guess you could put something like Inception in there, although I don't put it in my, it wouldn't have been in the, the playing for my top 10. Um, Vanilla Sky had uh, Tom Cruise, uh, also Minority Report was one that I kind of considered a little bit because I really was fond of that film for a long time. Um, Fifth Element, um, mm. 
I found it odd that I did not have mm-hmm. um, Bruce Willis uh, in there, Bruce Willis film. Uh, but I really, really like Fifth Element. I like its sensibility. I like its quirkiness. It's, it's a visual thing. I think uh, uh, Gauthier did all of the uh, the costumes and a lot of the design for that film. Contact. That's really, to, to, let's just, just go in just very quickly on uh, Fifth Element because mm. that also has an emotional wallop at the end. Yes. What is the actual Fifth Element? It just makes me sort of tear up or get emotional, just the 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 the, the, the ending of it. Now, oh, I know go ahead. Uh, Contact takes a lot of stick uh, f- for its ending. Some people love it. Some people hate it. I think uh, I love I think, it. I think South Park ripped into it because of the ending. I love it as well. And to me, it as you know, sort of reflected in my list, it has a lot of great science elements to it, yet it's got a human heart which I, I love about that film. It's um, really good. And the only thing, and I've harped on this too many times over the past, since our podcast began, but that whole scene, which I still don't understand how it made it to the final film, where she talks about what are the chances of life out there? And she starts dividing by a million and eventually gets right. to a negative number, which is, well, if you have 10 million possibilities universes out there and you've got one in a million of those has this and they keep dividing it by a million every time she mentions if only one million of those has this and if only one and so on if you do the math very quickly you realize you've got a zero chance of life being out there so the whole thing and how can you read that and how can you film that how can you not look at that and not realize that the math is wrong right I know, and in a, in a story that is supposed to be really based around science, it's it's. It, it makes me want to read the original novel, which Rob uh, recommend. Like, th- th- is that this Sagan? Is a good novel, yeah, Sagan. Yeah, um, really good. But I would have to see if that actual line the lines, the way it's said there, are in it. There's just no way with Carl yeah. Sagan and with his understanding of things. There's no way that he that that could have been in the original novel. My final two uh, then are uh, again a film that. You know, not everybody loves, but it's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with Martin Freeman and Zoe mm. Deschanel. And um, um, so Sam Rockwell is so hilarious in it. Mm. Um, oh, and also, um, um, oh, uh, Rickman as as uh, Marvin. He's just, I love hearing his voice as Marvin. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And so my last one was The Thing. That was The, the Thing and Superman 2 are two that I was like trying to shoehorn in, but I just couldn't. There's just only so much space. Um, I found it interesting that um, of my top 10, seven uh, were from uh, the years 1977 to 1982, (laughs) which is probably, you know, when I first became uh, an independent film goer, you know, not just being taken to films by my, my parents. Now you're saying 77 to 92, 82. 77 to 82, just that yeah. range, just yeah. those five or six years. Yeah. You have seven of these. Let me just quickly. So 77 to 82. Let me just do a quick math. One, yeah. two, three. Um, yeah. I have three then. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I'll quickly go. Yeah. We're running out of time. I'll quickly go over Love my to know. list of things. Um, and and it's, it's a bit more than 10, but I'm just going to quickly go into titles. Sure. Minority Report, Gattaca. A Galaxy Quest, oh, Godzilla, yes. 
Edge of Tomorrow, which is a better film than it should be. The Martian, Close Encounters, Logan's mm-hmm. Run, The Hunger Games, Day the Earth Stood Still, which generally, if you were to just actually do, as you said, that list of if you're going to pick 10 SF films that have ever been, and don't just have it as your own favorites, but just separately and just say, hey, yeah, this gotta is a be film there. you must see. Yeah, Day the Earth Stood Still would be there. There's no question about it. A Jurassic Park, Interstellar, Gravity, Robocop, The Terminator, Inception, Avatar, E.T., Aliens, um, Terminator 2, Star Wars, mm-hmm. and The Matrix are some yeah. of the ones. Um, Easily could be there. <laughs> Our website is twooldfarts.ca it's twonumericof.ca uh, on twitter we are at twonumeric two old farts sci-fi and on facebook we are two old farts talk sci-fi please leave a comment tell us what you thought of the show uh what you'd like to see in the future tell us what your favorites are and please tell a friend i am david plank and i'm troy harkin see you all on the next episode of Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi.